I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know how in the world I'm going to preach it, but man, there's majesty here. Other times you come upon a text and it's like, oh my goodness, you know, can I skip it? No, that'll be obvious because we don't skip anything. I mean, we, we go all the way through. If I skip, it'll be obvious. What am I going to do with this particular text? And this morning we come upon one of those texts in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. We're going to read it in just a moment. But this is the calling of the first disciples. And when you're reading just the, the glory of chapter 1, the exaltation of Christ in the prologue, and John the Baptist, those first two days of Christ's public ministry, of John the Baptist deflecting all questions away from himself onto Christ, the interrogation of John and the exaltation of Christ, questions about John, and John says, you're not, you don't need to be thinking about me. It's Christ, it's Him. And then we saw last week the appearance of, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then you kind of come into day three in these, this first week of Jesus' public ministry, and it's more or less just Jesus' interaction with some of the disciples and, and, and you know, they're following Him, which is it's a magnificent text. But it almost reads like filler. You know, it almost reads like, okay, this is good. This is following Jesus. And then you kind of continue on. We do tend to read Scripture with an eye to, maybe not always to Jesus, but to myself. Right? We're reading a passage, and what does this text say to me? What is this, how does this fix me? How does this help me? And so when you come upon a text like, the calling of the first disciples, it can be one of those you just kind of keep moving on along till you find the next thing that may be a little bit more helpful to you. But that's not the case at all. You know, one of the things we try to emphasize here at Covenant Life Church, the first question we ask every time we open our Bibles, I don't care if it's the book of Genesis, the book of Ruth, the book of Psalms, the book of Zechariah, Romans, Revelation. The first question we ask is not how does this apply to me? It's not, how does this apply to my marriage? How does this apply to my life? How does this apply to my finances? How does this apply to my thought life? How does this apply to me as a parent? The first question we ask of every text is, what does this reveal to me about God? What is this text telling me about God? And particularly, since Christ is the revelation of God, you see God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is this passage telling me about Christ? Every text, even in the Old Testament, before Christ comes in the flesh, every, what does this text tell me about Christ? And the same is true this morning as we look at this text on the calling of the first disciples. I'm beginning this way this morning and setting up the song we're doing because over the past couple of weeks, just, again, just kind of looking ahead and, and figuring out what am I going to do with this text, I can't tell you the myriad of resources that are out there that made this text all about us, me, being a faithful disciple. And that's a right application. Don't hear misunderstand me. But that gets the cart before the horse. To take this text and focus upon me and am I being a good disciple is man-centered. We're going to see this morning what made these first disciples the first disciples. It's what they saw in Christ. There's an attraction to Christ, a magnetism to Christ, that if the eyes of faith are open to see, are magnetically drawn to Him. 
Our goal this morning in looking at this text is not the calling of the disciples. It's what did they see in Christ that made Christ so irresistible that they left everything else to follow this one. And this morning, it will not behoove us to just, I want to be a disciple like those guys. Well, yes, amen to that. But to be a disciple like that, you've got to see what they saw. Your eyes of faith, like a magnet, have to be drawn irresistibly to the attractiveness of Christ. And that's our prayer this morning. Show us what they saw. Show us Christ. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The most important thing we'll do all morning. Just read the word of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the teaching, the revelation of the God you are in the face of Jesus Christ. And we plead with you this morning, as John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and there's room for that in our souls this morning, for the unbeliever who desperately needs to believe, and for the believer who, though we may believe, still has room to grow deeper in our affections for Christ, our knowledge for Christ, our love for Christ. Lord, would you, through the power of your Spirit, open our eyes to what these men saw 
about Christ? What is it that made Christ so attractive, so irresistible, that they forsook all else to follow Him? And would you be pleased to do the same in us? We who are tempted by so many things in the world to drift away from Christ, would you make Christ the great attraction? Christ the great distraction? Would you make Christ all to us today? That like these men, we would be true disciples who follow Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at the text this morning, the title of the message is Behold the Attractiveness of Christ. Behold the Attractiveness of Christ. We might as well say the Attraction of Christ. As we're looking this morning at the calling of these first disciples, here's something we need to wrestle with, something I had to wrestle with even as I was working on the message. John does not include material in his gospel that's unimportant. John does not just fill space. We know this because later on in chapter 21, we're going to read, Now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John himself acknowledges, there is so much more I want to say and reveal about Christ. I just can't do it. I'm limited. We don't have the resources to put the fullness of Christ on display that we saw, that I observed. I can't do it. I have to be very, I have to be very picky and choosy. And I have to pick exactly what I'm going to include in my gospel to accomplish these purposes. So that means when we look at a passage such as this, John chose this passage. John's purpose is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That We've said that in pretty much every message even for us as believers, that our belief might grow deeper and stronger. That's His purpose. I can only put the material in that's going to make the hearts of my hearer believe more deeply in who Jesus is. That's my aim, John says. So we come to the story of the calling of His first disciples, and we're left with no other conclusion except this. This is not filler. This isn't color commentary to try to kind of help kind of fill in the gaps to round out the story. These stories are designed and specifically chosen by John not to tell us a lot about the first disciples, but to tell us about the Christ whom those disciples were drawn to. That we too might know this Christ savingly as these first disciples did. And we might walk with Him with all of our life. Why do we begin here this morning? Because if we're not careful, we might do what I'm prone to do. Just skim right over this. Or, to whatever extent we focus upon this passage, we're going to focus upon Peter and Andrew and the disciples and what they did and try to do what they did which is all well and good, except for that 
we can't be and do what they did if we're not drawn to what they were drawn to. That's why I said at the beginning, that gets the cart before the horse. This passage is not about the disciples. This passage is about the attractiveness of Christ. John includes it, that our hearts might be enchanted with Christ, might be drawn to Christ, might be irresistibly wooed by Christ and the attractiveness that they saw. And it's important to see here that these events for these disciples was life-changing. These individuals saw something in Christ that they didn't just fill a notebook with notes about, here's something neat I learned about Jesus today. What they saw and were attracted to in Christ caused them to change the entire course of their lives. That's the power of the beauty and the attractiveness of Christ. To the eyes of faith, they're given grace to see. We might frame it this way. Once your soul, the eyes of your soul, I'm not talking about these eyes. The eyes of your soul get a glimpse of the beauty and the attractiveness and the excellencies of Christ. You won't ever be the same. It's impossible. It is an impossibility. And you can go through every episode in the New Testament of those who encountered Jesus and became true believers. Their lives were marked by the theological word conversion, a transformation, a change. You can go down the line. You can look at Peter. You can look at these disciples. You can look at Paul. You can look at John himself. You can read church history. Those who come in contact, not with the Sunday school Jesus, but the Jesus of the Word of God and see Him with the eyes of faith are forever changed. They're never the same. So as we look at this passage together, our focus very briefly this morning is on the attractiveness of Christ. What is it that made Christ so attractive? And with this, I hope we'll come to be maybe an awareness of how far the church has departed from a Christ-centered ministry. We live in a day-to-day. We use all kinds of methods and gimmicks to try to woo people to Christ, to the church, right? Different programs, different activities, different events. We're a different church. We do things differently. We're not like the others. This message is going to be unique. This message is, is, is keeping with the times. It's sensitive to what's going on around us. Come, you're going to find something practical for you. You're struggling in your marriage. Come, we're going to address those things. The church is full of strategies, tactics, gimmicks to try to woo people to Christ. Foolishness. Absolute foolishness. If Christ is the face of God, the fullness of God, and inherently attractive Himself, we would be fools to try to woo anybody to Christ with anything other than Christ. He needs no supplement. He needs no help. 
Christ is inherently attractive. And if the world doesn't see that, it's because of their blindness. And us trying to cater to their blindness does not help the cause. What is it that woos these disciples to Jesus? It's not because Jesus and John the Baptist came onto the scene and started doing these big tent revivals, these programs, these events, these activities, all these kinds of things to draw attention. Christ just walks onto the scene. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who who, uh, brings about the forgiveness of the sins of His people. And the Holy Spirit begins His work of opening some eyes to see. We've never seen anything like this before. And we'll leave everything that we once treasured to follow Him. This is the attractiveness of Christ. As we look at these things, there needs to be welling up within our own hearts a repentance that we've drifted away, that maybe we ourselves have sorely underestimated the magnificence of Christ and that He alone draws people to himself by himself. As we look at the text this morning, what are the attractions or the what is the attractiveness of Christ on display? The first of them is this. We, we could call it different things. I'm calling it the accessibility of Christ. The accessibility of Christ. When John the Baptist says, this is one of the things that makes Christ So attractive. When John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, the text tells us in the opening verses we read that Andrew and John run over to catch up with Jesus while at least for the moment no one else is around. And Jesus asks them, What are you seeking? And Andrew and John, it's almost like they didn't want to impose on Jesus. They, 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 They knew that he wouldn't in this moment have time to answer all the questions they have. And so they simply reply in verse 38, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Probably a polite way of saying, listen, this is just overwhelming and who you are. Things are about to get busy for you. What are you doing tonight? Where are you going to be tonight? Maybe we can have a more convenient time to sit down and talk about some things. Now, keeping in mind who Jesus is, going back to the prologue, the pre-existent one, the eternal God, before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, He was, always existed, eternal, one with the Father, yet distinct from the Father, the true light of the world, in Him was life, uh, without Him was not anything that is, was that is, in Him is life. This is a pretty magnificently infinitely significant figure. No one more important than Jesus of Nazareth. How should Jesus, this one, respond to these two peons coming up to him? Hey, where are you spending the night, creator of the world? I'm the savior of the world. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I'm the son of God. I've been sent by the Almighty to to, to execute our eternal plan of salvation, which was in place long before Genesis 1-1. I don't have time for a couple of little inquisitive boys. That might be what we expect. Isn't that in in the world around us, important figures, political figures? Do you have accessibility to important and significant people around you? I mean, if you go up to the White House and knock on the door, are you going to have access to the president? 
No. I mean, my good, you, if you go to the mayor's office and knock on the door here in Olive Branch, you're probably not going to have in that moment access to the mayor. And here we have the Lamb of God. And without hesitation, here's wonder of wonders. Jesus, the infinite God, smiles and says to them, Come and see. Where are you going to stay today? Come and see. I don't think it's possible to put into words how elated these two men, how excited these two men were to have a personal audience with the Lamb of God. To have personal, face-to-face -face time with the living God. Face-to-face -face time with the one that before the face of God is His beloved. The one that the Father says, this is the one set apart, is like no other, my beloved Son. So wonderful that even John the Baptist has said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. And this one has said, come, you can have communion with me. Beloved, don't rush past that. Behold the accessibility of Jesus of Nazareth. This is one of the most amazing things we discover in the gospel stories. He was as if not, no, he was more important than every other important person in his day. But he didn't isolate himself away. He didn't hide himself away. He put himself right in the middle and even allowed them to touch him. It's amazing. There's never been one like this. Do you understand how attractive that is? No, 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 I'm, I'm asking you. Do you know personally the carryover of that into your life? He's made himself accessible to you for face-to-face -face communion and fellowship anytime you want it with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of the universe. Anytime you want it, you open this book and you're face to face with Jesus of Nazareth. He speaks to you and out of the overflow of this, you turn this into prayer and speak to Him. Do we understand that Jesus is not like all the other gods that are out there, little g? He's not some deistic God who sets the world in motion and then backs off and says, y'all have it. This is a God who's left heaven to come to earth, to live among us, to be tempted to suffer, to endure all the heartache that you're bringing with you this morning, all those things, you, the baggage you carry, the burden you have this morning, the things that possibly even this morning you woke up thinking, I'm not going to go this morning because I've got this going on, this going on. And no one understands. People will be indifferent. Christ knows. It's you and I who've never carried a burden like He has. Our burdens, He understands and knows because He took them far further than we have. And this Christ, just like he did with these two disciples, opens the door and invites us. 
come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I've made myself accessible. And who am I? Go back to John 1, 1 through 18. That's why John begins there. Remember we said at the beginning, John begins that because when he's talking about Jesus, he wants to make sure we, this is who we're thinking of. Not our Sunday school Jesus, that you know, our flannel graph Jesus with sandals and gown and all that long hair. He wants us thinking of the pre-existent creator of all things, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-glorious, infinite in glory, life, light, no darkness at all. That one says, come to me. The majesty. What attractiveness that that one says, ask, seek, knock, without hesitation, come to me. That's the first, we might call it, attribute of attractiveness we see here in Jesus. The second one is this. Not just his accessibility, his assertiveness, his assertiveness, maybe his sovereignty. Verses 40 through 43. Let me read these. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus is proactive in this. Jesus is not a responder. Jesus is not one who's sitting back, observing his environment and saying, Hmm, I wonder what I can do. What should I do here? I've got these people coming to me. Um, no, Jesus is plunging forward, driving forward with the eternal purposes of the Father. Remember when Jesus comes into the world, He's coming as the pre-existent one who has an eternal gospel with the Father. And He brings it. And when He shows up, He's not just sitting back kind of passive, kind of observing things. He's executing the plan. He's coming actively fulfilling the Father's plans and purposes. And He's not bound by the circumstances, he's not bound by man, what man's doing. Oh, no, I don't think we took into account the Pharisees are doing this. Or Peter, and he was not where, where I thought he was going to be. No, he comes into the world, he's in control of it. He's sovereign over it. And he's executing everything perfectly. And one of the ways this becomes most apparent is how he enters into relationship with his disciples. Oftentimes, and you, I'm going to throw out kind of a broad blanket, and you'll have the right to agree with me, but I would challenge you even if you do disagree with me. Oftentimes, in evangelistic settings, Jesus is portrayed as a kind of a man sitting at a bus stop, kind of sitting back over here, hat in hand, and um, waiting to see, will you follow him? Will you? And he's just waiting to see. Come on, come on, will you? Won't you follow me? Am I wrong on that? That's kind of how he's portrayed. It's up to you. You, you decide. And Jesus is just sitting back kind of, well, I hope that person will or won't, but hat in hand, just kind of waiting to see, hoping someone will come along and accept his invitation to follow him. Well, that's not how the gospel presents Jesus. Ever. Ever does it present Jesus as sitting back hoping. Rather, just the opposite. Look at how Peter 
becomes Jesus' disciple. The first thing Jesus does when Peter comes up, Jesus asserts his sovereignty and changes the man's name. <laughs> this is the first time he's met Peter. Peter just walks up, again, trying to figure things out. What's the first thing Jesus does? Changes the man's name. Listen, parents, you know, there's a reason why we name our children the way we do. How do you like someone, some stranger coming up to you and just say, I'm going to change this child's name? That's audacious. I mean, gutsy, assertive, but that's audacious. So you're Simon, the son of John. No, no. From now on, you're going to be Cephas, which is translated Peter. And as far as we can tell, these are the very first words Jesus ever spoke to Peter. <laughs> How about that? This is not a bystander sitting back hat in hand. I wonder what Peter's going to do. I'm hoping. This is the sovereign king, creator of the universe, who's come into the world he made to fulfill the Father's purposes. It's pretty bold. We might even go on to say if we didn't know who Jesus was, it's downright arrogant and presumptuous. But Jesus is not just any old person. He's the John 1, 1 through 18. That's why the prologue exists. This is the one who has the right to do this. And this is what John wants us to see about the beauty of Christ, the attractiveness of Christ. This is what, why people are drawn to Christ. Peter's new name means rock. And if there's anything we know about Peter, the man was not a rock. The man's character, he was undependable, impulsive, self-centered, impetuous, certainly not fit to lead the church of Jesus Christ. But see, God's plans are never dependent upon you and I. There is not. That might be a newsflash to us. It may be a newsflash to a lot of churches out there. That the kingdom of God is dependent upon you and I establishing a church that's just so. Otherwise, people are going to want to come. That's never our responsibility. Peter was the cornerstone. Well, Christ was the cornerstone of the church. But, but Peter himself being uh, an influential leader of that. Peter wasn't qualified to be that. But God had a plan for Peter's life. And God was in the process of changing Peter to make him useful to the God, the Father. And that's the same thing God does with you and I. The term we use to call what we see Jesus doing with Peter, we call it conversion and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Conversion or justification is the change. So the change of name with Peter here is associated with that transformation of his person. And the growth to be what God intends him to be is sanctification. A long process that we're going through, if you're a true believer, of changing us to be more like Christ. It goes back to something we said even during the prayer meeting. The grace of God upon a soul where he implants life himself into a soul produces change. Change to be more like Jesus. That's like we said this morning. If you're looking at your life and nothing's changing, 
Maybe you're just adding on religion. I mean, nothing. the core of your being, your habits, your thoughts, your words, it's just not changing, but I'm adding on religion. I'm adding on I go to church. Something is terribly wrong. The work of God in a soul changes it. He, it's like a hammer and chisel. And it's not a quick process. Don't hear me saying that overnight you ought to be seeing a change. But there should be a, a, the trajectory of your life becoming more like Jesus. The work of the gospel upon a soul, what Jesus is doing in Peter's life, is making him more like Christ. The same desires, the same ambitions, the same affections as Jesus had. The Apostle Paul uh, explains this in Romans. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Oh, how we love that text, don't we? God is causing all things to work together for good. And if we leave that isolated away from the rest of the text, man, we can make that mean anything in the world, right? Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. He's making them healthy. He's making them wealthy. He's making them wise. He's giving them a better job. That's not what the text says. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. The text goes on to say, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. Well, what is the good? Well, He defines it. The very next verse, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the good. He's causing all things in your life, good, bad, indifferent, all those little things that you think really are inconsequential. He is a sovereign over all of them and using all of them for a purpose to make you more like Jesus. That's the good he intends. And it may not mean you get healthy. It may not mean you get wealthy. It may not mean you get a better job. It may not mean, I mean, look at the treatment Jesus got. It was not exactly first-class living. And if he's conforming us more to the likeness of Jesus, it may mean something altogether different. The point here is, Peter was drawn to Jesus because of who Jesus was. Jesus had an awareness of Peter and Peter's life long before he met Peter. And what's true of Peter? What's true of David in the book of Psalms where David says, you knew my days even before they were? Newsflash. It's true for you and me as well. The things we're going through today are not random. It's not an accident. It's not bad luck established in eternity past by a God who loves us inexplicably loves us and has a plan for his glory for his name's sake and for our good and our good is what to make us more like Jesus this is the assertiveness of Christ Jesus isn't sitting around hoping Peter's going to follow him. Jesus takes Peter. You've been set apart, Peter, by my Father in eternity past for his purposes. Today, my assignment is to take you to my Father. And here's your new name for him. And that's what he's done in the life of every true believer. It wasn't him sitting back waiting, oh, I hope you will accept me today. He revealed his beauty, his majesty, his attractiveness to us, and our hearts were drawn to him. 
in fulfillment of the eternal purposes of God. At the end of his ministry, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit for my Father. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Jesus isn't sitting at the bus stop, bus stop, hat in hand, waiting to see what happens. He is assertive and sovereign in the choosing of his people. Oh, majesty. Oh, power. Have you ever seen anything like this one? This is the attractiveness of Christ. Very quickly, number three. The uh, accessibility of Christ, the assertiveness of Christ. Number three, the omniscience of Christ. In verses 43 through 49, we have Jesus' call of Philip and Nathaniel. There's a progression. Andrew takes the news of Jesus to Simon Peter. Then Jesus finds Philip, again, actively, assertively. Jesus finds Philip, who then God uses to go and find Nathaniel. So the news about Jesus and just the magnificence of this man is beginning to spread, which is really how the church grows. There's no, no tactics, no strategy, no program. It's Jesus himself. It's Jesus who is the great attraction. Hearts are being drawn to his beauty. And so when Nathaniel hears the news about Jesus, he's skeptical. That's where we have the statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, Nazareth, it's, it's, it's a little hole in the wall. It's nothing. Joseph's son, no, I, no, there's, there's nothing to which he's told, come and see. And he goes. And notice the exchange between Jesus and Nathaniel in verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What, is, what does John want us to see about Jesus here? This is not about Nathanael. It wasn't about Peter. It's not about Andrew. What does John want us to see about Jesus? <laughs> that Jesus transcends anything we've ever known. His knowledge it, it transcends space and time. The, Jesus is one who knows everything. What did he just tell Nathaniel? I knew who you were before Philip went and told you who I was. I saw you. Before this whole thing went down, you were sitting under that fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, it's impossible for you to know that impossible for humans to know that. Now, I use that lightly because Jesus was human, but he was the God-man. We use the word omniscience to talk about perfect knowledge. Jesus not only knew Nathaniel before they met, he actually saw him under the fig tree. And so how did Nathaniel respond to this attractive feature of Christ? Rabbi. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Oh, don't, don't celebrate Nathaniel there. 
Don't look at Nathaniel and say, that needs to be my response too. The reason Nathaniel responds that way is because of what he has just witnessed and beheld in the face of Jesus Christ. That this man is unlike any other man. This is a man, only God could do what this man just did. And I fall down on my face before him because of his beauty, his majesty, his holiness. Normal people are not omniscient. Normal people can't do what this man just did. Nathaniel was drawn to Christ because his eyes saw this is the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the Son of God. There's no other explanation. This is the King of Israel. The accessibility of Christ, the assertiveness, the omniscience of Christ, and finally the glory of Christ. Notice how Jesus responds to Nathanael in verses 50 and 51. I wish we had more time for this, and we may come back to it. I haven't decided. Jesus answered him. This is Nathanael. Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree. Do you believe? To which Nathaniel will say, yes. That's remarkable. Nathaniel, you're about to see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying here, and you have to know your Old Testament to understand this illusion. In Daniel, Daniel's vision there of uh, looking in Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There, Daniel is talking about the eschatological glory of Christ, like we saw in the book of Revelation. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together to worship him. That's what Jesus is referencing. You think this is remarkable? Wait until you see me in full glory. You haven't seen nothing yet. But there's also another illusion here. Where do we get the, the picture of heaven open, and the angels ascending and descending on something. Think back to Genesis. Remember Jacob's vision? The ladder? Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending here. It's an allusion to that. But here he identifies the ladder. Uh, angels ascending and descending. He doesn't talk about the ladder. He, he, the Son of Man. He identifies, again, this is where the Old Testament is always about Jesus. The ladder there was Christ. He's the way who opens the, the way between heaven and earth and access to heaven. It's through Him. John wants us to understand. Oh, what you see of Jesus in His earthly ministry is magnificent. It's beautiful. It is attractive. But hope in this. You ain't seen nothing yet. The beauty you see on display here, this is where our study of Revelation was intended to be a help to us. Claim for this. 
Because what we see here with Christ Jesus is the hope of every believer. And there's more beauty to behold in Christ in eternity forever and ever and ever than your soul can handle. It will be every day for all eternity more attractiveness, more beauty, more majesty that will cause you, like Daniel, like the, to fall on your face before Him just to get back up, to be revealed more, and fall down again. You haven't seen anything yet. This is the glory of Christ. And so, John wants us to begin to understand just certain things about Jesus. Each of these individuals learned something about Jesus from their encounter. Their hearts were drawn to Him. And their response was, for John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. For Andrew, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ. That's a transformation of heart. This man was previously living for something other than this one, but now he proclaims Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ. Philip says in, in verse uh, later on in the text, Jesus is the one that Moses and the prophets spoke of. All the Old Testament were telling us about this one. He's here. This is him. And Nathaniel, Jesus is the Son of God and King of Israel. And then Jesus himself says about himself in verse 51, oh, by the way, I was the ladder between heaven and earth in Jacob's dream. Access to the Father between heaven and earth. The only way to God is through me. I'm the ladder. You can't get there without me. And these are but a few of the attractive features of Christ. But a few. But the message is simple. Jesus is worthy of your affection. He's worthy of you leaving all else to have Him. He's worthy of your adoration and your worship. He is this John 1, 1 through 18. So we spent nine messages going through that. He is that one. Run to Him. Believe on Him. Trust Him. And don't think, Again, like we said a moment ago, that Jesus is just sitting back here as a bystander hoping that you might take him up on that today. Let me frame it this way. If you're sitting here today and you know you need to run to Jesus and take him as your Lord and Savior, but your heart is not inclined to do so, then you cry out to him who is active in the salvation of his people. You cry out to him, God, something is wrong in me. I can't change it. I can't sit through enough sermons. I can't sit through, I can't do enough good things. I can't be religious enough to well up inside of me what needs to be take place for me to see what they saw and to be attracted to you. That nothing else has an attraction to me anymore. It's just you. I can't do, you have to do that. Won't you do that? Please do that. And I promise you, don't hear that and think, so God is playing a game with your soul. He's not. But the God who does those things uses means to accomplish it. And the fact you're here this morning is also a means that he is actively working in your soul. Cry out to him. Save me. Change me. Change my name child of God through you the ladder 
who brings me to heaven and earth. Beloved, do you believe these things? We very easily could have made this a study of the disciples themselves. Imitate them. That wouldn't be a benefit to you. You've got to believe what they believed. You've got to see what they saw. The great attraction of Christianity is not what the church can do. And again, this is where churches need to repent. We need to repent. God, forgive us for trying to woo people to you and to your church with anything other than Jesus. He is inherently attractive. And if people don't see it, God, we pray that you would open their eyes to see it. But we will not divert away from Christ. He is all. Are you finding your mind, your heart, your attitude when I say something like that? Affirming, absolutely, that is true. Because I know Christ is all. Once you get, your soul gets a glimpse of the excellencies of Christ, your life will never be the same. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Run to him.